Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the always on time coach Trevor Connor. The hour. Those two words represent many things to many people. Some believe it to be the ultimate test of man and machine. Out there on the track, nowhere to hide, an athlete must come to terms with what they're truly capable of. Others know it as a form of torture, a crucible for understanding one's ability to cope with pain, suffering, or madness. If you're lucky, the hour is a hard way to reach a form of cycling-inspired, dizzying nirvana. Many of the greatest cyclists in history have made attempts or held the hour record. Most of them then crawled off their bikes, never to ride on a track again. With UCI rule changes several years ago came a resurgence in interest in the event. Eventually, Bradley Wiggins smashed the record, hitting 54.526 kilometers in June 2015. The obsession lives on. There are few people in the world who know both the agony and the ecstasy of the hour, as well as our guest today, Colby Pierce. He is someone who has attempted more hour records than anyone else I can think of. Just days ago, he set a new Masters world record in the 45 to 49 age group category, riding a remarkable 50.245 kilometers, a full 833 meters farther than the previous record held by Ken Bostic. In this episode, we sat down with Colby to take a deep dive into the hour. It's something I know all too well since I made an attempt in 2015. I lived. Barely. But I digress. In addition to our personal experiences, in this episode, we will discuss a brief history of the hour. Why it's so hard, and therefore special. Is it the hardest thing you can do on a bike? We ask the question. We then jump into a discussion on how to prepare for the hour, just in case you were to suddenly find yourself craving hot, spiky pain in every orifice. It includes the 80-20 principle and getting caught up in numbers. Training at 90% of threshold. The importance of focusing on form. The crucial mental preparation it takes to tackle this event. Next, we jump into the gear and aerodynamics. From frontal area to the finest of gains to be had from chain friction and sock length. Finally, we break it down. Ultimately, this event all comes down to executing on the track. We discuss the nuances of pacing, and the dynamics of riding on the track, the rhythm, the added forces, gearing and cadence choices, finally mindset, chunking, and proactive versus reactive thought patterns. Colby's wealth of knowledge on the hour is unsurpassed, and we'll hear a lot from him in this episode. We're also lucky enough to hear from two other hour veterans on today's episode. When I was preparing for my hour attempt in 2015, I had the pleasure of chatting with Rowan Dennis, who briefly held the hour record that year. As an aside, just days ago, Rowan won the World Time Trial Championship in Innsbruck. Back in 2015, I also spoke with Rowan's coach, Neil Henderson. Both of them have interesting thoughts on the hour, and we'll share those today. So, zip up the excruciatingly tight skin suit. Check to make sure your power meter is on. Pull the aero socks high. It's our record week at Fast Talk. Let's make you fast.
This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Normatec. The more you train, the better your recovery needs to be. Normatec's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skoinch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC racing team, including Rohan Dennis, using the Normatec boots. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. So I think the place to start here is talking with the two of you, because both of you have some real personal experience with the hour record, which I have basically none of, and very different experience. Colby, you might very well be the most experienced hour record person in the world. I know you argue <laughs> against that, but for some reason, you keep putting yourself through that pain and you're planning on doing it again. Chris... So the three of us wrote an article together about the hour record, and Chris was the guinea pig for this. So basically, uh, what, five weeks before you made the attempt, you got on an aero bike for the first time, you got on the track for the first time, and being a punchy climber decided, I'm going to go do a really steady one-hour effort. So it was kind of a shock to the system for you. Yeah, no exaggeration. Probably a month before I actually made the attempt, I went out to the track, the Boulder Valley Velodrome, with Colby to step onto a track for the first time in my life <laughs> and be on a track bike for the first time in my life. That's so from from zero to 46K-ish in a month. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> so why did you guys talk a little bit about your experience with this, Chris? And I know there's something you want to start with. Well, I uh, was rereading the article Amateur Hour that I wrote and part experiential from my point of view, part physiology from Trevor's point of view, a lot of great input from, from Colby and others. And we'll talk about some of that in the, in the bit. But, um, so I was rereading this in preparation for this episode and it just brought it right back to me. So I thought I'd reread or I'd read the introductory scene and paragraph from this piece just to set the mood for what we're going to talk about. Uh, it might be a little bit dramatic. I might be dying. <laughs> the corners of my vision are turning dark, vignetted like an old photograph. Someone or something seems to be persistently pushing the front of my head downward, and my neck muscles no longer have the strength to fight back. I have a sickening feeling of panic inside. I can't do this anymore. I don't know how I'm going to do this anymore. I can't do five more minutes. Ten more minutes, buddy. Come on. Up, up, up. You'll come the yells from my pacer, mechanic, and friend, Nick Legan at Trackside. Oh, did he just say 10 minutes? I really, really thought he was going to say five. Oh, I'm at the absolute bottom. A feeling of deep despair sweeps over me. I feel so alone. But none of that matters now. I'm in the midst of indescribable agony. The black line is wandering beneath my wheels. My head keeps dropping further, more frequently. Fast feet, fast feet, I repeatedly hear on the exit of turn two. The clinking, clacking of cowbells ring in turn four. My brain is only absorbing a fraction of these sporadic sensations. All I want is to rest my head. It's getting dangerous out here. I might crash. I could very well crash. I can't control this bike anymore, especially not while steering with my elbows. Instead of looking ten feet ahead, I'm staring over the tip of my nose. All I see is a blur of sun-soaked gray. I'm hearing the yells to hold the line, stay smooth, keep my form, 
but I'm, but I'm having irrepressible and involuntary urges to sit up. Something inside is driving, but it doesn't feel like it's me. I'm angry because I'm not in command. I'm scared because I'm out of control. And then the gun goes off. It's over. Head up, head up, yell fans and friends trackside. I'm depleted, destroyed, and heading straight for the lap counter at the edge of the track at almost 30 miles per hour. I correct myself as I wildly veer away from the infield wall, back up the steep banking of the first corner, then down to the blue apron of the track again. I'm alive. I don't fully believe it yet, but it's all over now. There aren't enough expletives to describe what I had just put myself through while riding in circles, pushing as hard and as fast as I could with every atom of energy in order to finish right back where I started. That's the hour. So just to give some con- <laughs> so, <laughs> just so, just yeah. to give some context, this is a point where we came up to Chris and said, "Buddy, the warm up's over. It's time to get started." <laughs> oh man, I only wish. No, that was. Um, I think you're going to hear from me a lot about a very painful experience. I think Colby has had probably some painful moments out there, but just just a very different experience as a whole. If you've ever thought about, man, I, I really want to try the hour or do the hour, don't necessarily listen to everything I have to say because I feel like I really almost died out there. <laughs> Colby, Colby will tell you a slightly different tale. But do you want to talk about a little bit about all of that experience? I mean, yeah. okay, Graham Obrey has done the hour yep. uh, quite a number of times, but then I, I honestly feel like you're, you've got to be in the top three people that have taken on this challenge, this god-awful, incredible challenge. At its core, it's pretty simple. Um, Well, where to begin? Yes. It's an hour. Tell us about your first attempt. Uh, Well, my first (laughs) one was, I really took credit, uh, JB, Jonathan Vodders, who were coming up with the idea. He and I were training buddies and we were pretty young and and we both sort of emulated these two time trial gods in in the U.S. time trial scene in the, who were really the the guys to beat in around the late eighties, early nineties. And these guys were John Fry and Kent Bostic. And I uh, eventually ended up being teammates with Kent on Shackley for a number of years. And these guys were just the original Uber dorks. I mean, they rode these bikes that were made by this company called Hooker and they were, they looked like traditional bikes, but they've been flattened in a vice, but I mean, much more sophisticated than that, but that's fundamentally what it was. Everything was just as narrow as possible. That was their, their line of attack. And, uh, they had aero brake calipers, narrow hubs, like 60 millimeter hubs or 40 millimeter hubs or something crazy in the front. And, um, these aero fork blades and these super crazy handlebars. And these guys rode these things and they were riding aero helmets and aero water bottles. I mean, stuff that just didn't exist then. They were way ahead of the curve and, and they had each won multiple national titles and, uh, and were very successful and kind of emulated them. And, and John Fry had the U.S. hour record when I was in the early 90s. I don't recall what year he said it, but he also, he and Kent both had respective 40K records they'd set on the, the fastest course in the country at the time, which was in Moriarty, New Mexico. It's where most of the national records still are set today. And, you know, Jonathan said, well, at some point you should go for, for Fry's hour record. It's kind of a thing you should do. And I was like, hmm, thought about it and kind of had the back of my head and sort of accumulating masses as a time trial is starting to get better and better. And then we started doing some testing and then I, I went to the Springs, had the Veldrum kind of in our backyard. I, I lived in Boulder, grew up in Boulder. So started going down there and doing testing and it seemed like it was in the striking distance. So in 95, I decided it was going to be my goal and went down in September and, and pulled it off. I rode, uh, so Fry's record was 49.494, I want to say kilometers. And I get this question all the time. And what was your time? 
<laughs> one hour. 60 minutes. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, it's a little bit different than most other time trials. And you uh, went? And I went 50.191K. Amazing. So, it was a solid ride. Uh, I was pretty happy with it, honestly. I was, but yeah, it's all relative. It is. It's all relative. And that was on, just not to dork out too, too deeply, yeah, but yeah. that was on your Lotus no, bike. No, it's, it's worth, it, we have to explain the rules a little bit because people get confused by it because there have been so many yes. returns with it. So back then it was anything goes. This was the Obrey era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was 95, like 93, 94 is when he was doing Superman positions. And then the UCI was starting to clamp down on things because they really didn't like how radical his position was becoming. In my opinion, one of the key pivotal moments was when he won, I believe it was Pursuit Worlds in 93 in Hamar, Norway, if I remember correctly. And he was celebrating on his victory lap after the final. And he almost took himself out in the banking because he was on the egg position. And that bike is amazingly difficult to ride like a normal bike sure and i'm sure that that had an impact anyway that's just conjecture on my part but you watch the video and you're like oh that that's not what you want to see a world champion doing (laughs) yeah one whoa i'm gonna take myself out (laughs) yeah (laughs) so anyway uh graham huge innovator and and just crazy respect to that guy because he threw down in the most insane ways possible so your lotus bike thanks so yeah uh, (laughs) you can see me drifting in thought there yeah, so that was anything goes. So I rode the Lotus, which is still uh, hanging at the Pro's Closet Museum currently. If people want to check it out, they did a really cool video on it, but it's a super cool bike. I had a Scott 100K Extreme Aero Bars, which are like the ones where your hands are completely together. And the 100K version was super, super narrow. I think the widest point was probably about 30 centimeters wide, if I remember correctly. So you really couldn't do a standing start. You sort of did this mm. weird dead fish flopping around <laughs> out of a starting gate kind of thing to get going. Yeah. You got Jonathan was there and his uh, girlfriend at the time, Carrie was there and they helped me. We'd like did the math and like printed out this spreadsheet and calculated where I should be for each split. It was one twelve kilos was exactly 50 K an hour. And that was the target. And so I knew, I knew where I was the whole time. And that, that right down right there boils down to the single most, in my opinion, the most significant data point you can have during an hour record, because as you mentioned, Chris, it's so easy to get lost. Yeah. But if you have a target and you understand where you are relative to a pace you're trying to achieve or a record you're trying to break or a distance you're trying to, to go further than, then that single point of focus can make all the difference between just like wanting to stab yourself in the eyeball or curl yourself into the banking on purpose versus right. I can keep doing this. So I guess I have a question for <clears throat> both of you not having to experience this. You've had guys like Eddie Merckx and Bradley Wiggins who have won grand tours. These are guys who know how to suffer. They have done one attempt at the, the hour record. And when they were done, they just went never again. Is this the hardest thing to do in cycling? It is amongst the hardest things I've ever done. It's it's I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it a bit because it's an hour long. How hard could it be? It just one of the best quotes that Colby gave me for the for the piece I wrote is about the fact that you're essentially a contortionist when you're a good time trialist and you're rolling yourself up into a super tight ball at the same time trying to access every ounce of power that you have in a very smooth manner and not moving from that position basically at all. And it just accumulates the first half hour. You probably are like, this isn't that bad. I can do this 45 minutes into it, into it. 
eh, things change. And then for me, the last 10 minutes were absolutely excruciating. You don't understand where these muscles and aches could be emanating from, but they start to appear. And the only thing you want to do, like I was mentioning, is stand up and stretch and just, and you could do that. You'll sacrifice something. And you, I think you saw Jens do that a little bit in the end of his attempt. But you're also like, no, I got to hold this position, hold this position. It just accumulates. And then you're, in my case as well, my, the, the back of my neck was so fatigued from, from, Shrugging your shoulders to get arrow and, and lifting your neck to peer up onto the track. Um, at some point, those muscles were f- literally failing on me and it got dangerous. So for all of those reasons, would, would I do it again? I really, really, really wouldn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Rohan Dennis, a world tour rider with BMC Racing, is no stranger to the hour. Setting a world record of 52.491 kilometers at the time in February of 2015. Chris interviewed Rohan about his attempt and how he dealt with the pain. Rohan touches on a lot of concepts we'll cover during this podcast. One of that wasn't the most painful. It was still right up there. Um, but as in one of the worst experiences on the bike I've ever had, you could say, pain-wise. But what I'm judging it off of more so is how I was feeling the next day. So obviously the legs were sore and everything, but it was nothing like halfway through a Grand Tour or or um, or even a week long tour where I'd gone full gas every day and and I was on the limit. I wasn't fit. It, it wasn't like that. I actually didn't feel too bad, and I probably put it down to it being not not a whole lot different strain wise to a one off time trial. It. It initially you've got, you start off, uh, you're on your pace for the first half like I was in the hour and it slowly builds up after that and the last 20, 15 and, and especially 10 minutes is, uh, is like hell. Um, <laughs> you've actually got, you've got nothing left and you're just going all out thinking, well, if I go any harder, I'm, I'm going to fall over. I'm going to drop. So, at the time, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but physically it didn't, it didn't destroy my body like a, like a week long or even a three week long tour. And, and I remember you saying that the, the sense that, oh shit, this is hell, like came on pretty quickly. Like in an instant, you went from feeling pretty good to feeling te- per- uh, petrified. Is that true? Yeah, it was around at 20 minutes to go. So, um, the first, the first signs I, that I noticed that my mental, um, you could say concentration was wavering was around about 20 minutes ago. And I could, I started noticing things outside of my little bubble of what I was doing. I started noticing smells of, uh, obviously people cooking hmm. in the velodrome for food. Obviously the spectators needed food. I noticed the discomfort on the saddle. And then all of a sudden I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable in the position and then the pain came on in the legs. When you snap out of your, when obviously you zoned out for most of it and then once you, you come out of that meditation sort of uh, zone, that's when things start to go downhill. Is there any, um, secret to how you 
finished off those 20 minutes or is, was it just like, you know what, this sucks, but I'm doing it. Just put your head down. Yeah. Just put your head down. And, uh, I just tried to keep Neil at the exact schedule that I was supposed to be sitting on. And at that stage, I knew I was up on, on the, on the record. So that sort of kept my, um, my morale up, uh, especially in the last 10 minutes. So I was thinking, look, let's just go as hard as you can, Rowan. It's all or nothing at this stage, especially 10 minutes to go and then five minutes to go. You just have to make sure you stay on this bike and don't fall over. Right. Um, and, you've, and you've got this record. That was sort of the survival mode kicking in, I think. Yeah, that's pretty well all that was keeping me going. If, if I was down down on the record, I reckon my morale would have been kicked into the ground pretty pretty heavily. Um, and it would have it would have hurt a lot knowing that there was nothing at the end of the no light at the end of the tunnel right. um, after the hour. So that I think that that was a huge motivator. Let's get back to Colby and talk with him about why this event is so hard. Well, some of the things that's interesting when you look at this from a physiological standpoint, when we talk about fatigue, we've we've discussed this before on the podcast that fatigue is really about losing homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the limits of homeostasis, you, you never run out of fat effectively when you're exercising. So you're really looking at your your glycogen stores, and they say you have about enough glycogen to last you an hour. Other things that we look at in terms of just what's the max point at which you can maintain homeostasis. You're talking about maintaining lactate levels. You also brought up a bit of the the positional issues mm-hmm. and the fatigue there. This is really a effort where you are pushing yourself right to the absolute limit of homeostasis for about how long the top end of homeostasis can last. And your body's going to react to that. It's going to react a lot to yeah. that. I think... In- Colby can add to this. I think, though I don't want to do it again, I'm extremely happy that happy might not be the best word, but I'm really glad that I did this because I can't think of a better crucible for understanding your capabilities. It's a perfect, I mean, it's FTP. It really is in a virtual world. It's you, it's a bike, it's a track. And it's really effing hard Mm -hmm. and you understand a lot about yourself and where you can go by doing it. Well, yes, with some caveats, (laughs) but there are a few technical points that really bring out the challenge of the hour. And I think this probably explains why people like Eddie Merckx, who clearly does know how to suffer. When you exam, when you break it down, you look at the differences between an hour, a really long climb in the tour, like a 40 K climb or a 30 K climb. I mean, those can easily take an hour. So what's the difference? Well, the most obvious difference is you've got people around you. You've got a Peloton to race against. And psychologically, there, there are two different types of racers, and most of them are in the category of they're better racing in a group. They can racing race, others. They can race against others more effectively. Right. I'm in the minority. I Especially in my younger part of my career, career I use that loosely. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> like I was, I was a better time trust. I was better at racing myself. And I, I think I'm, I've never seen any science to support this, but I'm pretty sure that's the minority. Most people naturally tend to race better when they're around a group of others and they can go race up a climb. I wasn't in, as interested in that for whatever reason, psychologically, I was better at, at torturing myself. 
And then I had to learn to race in a group and learn to push myself around other athletes a little better. And that developed as I went down the path of cycling. So that's one aspect. A few other aspects are if you look at, say, a 40K TT on the road, which can take, depending on the course, can easily take close to an hour for some riders. Or back in the older days of the tour, they used to have a lot of longer TTs, 50, 55, 60K sometimes. Sure. One of the primary differences there is that you have, even on the flattest road in the world, you've got some emulation in terrain, and that leads to some external distraction and also point of reference. That's number one. Number two is when you're riding down a road, no one, people don't really talk about this. And I've often wondered this, but if the distance is 40K, let's say you've got a certified course, it's exactly 20K to the turnaround, like uh, Moriarty and exactly 20K back. It's been homologated. If you weave down the road back and forth because you've got a 700 C front disc on, you very possibly could actually ride 40.2K. Sure. You could ride an extra 100 or 200 meters, especially if you're really weaving around. What's cool about track cycling is I tell this to my clients all the time, even ones who do points races and normal normal races, uh, air quotes, is that track cycling is the only sport I know where it's actually legal to cut the course. Right. Right. <laughs> right? And yeah. to explain this, when you do an hour record, if you're on a 250 meter velodrome, the black line at the bottom of the track is exactly 250 meters in length on a homologated velodrome. They put sponges up in the corners, which are a physical deterrent to you actually cutting the course. If you were going fast enough and you tried to cut the corner too much, you would hit the apron because the apron's not at the same angle as the pole lane, you'd probably crash. But that doesn't mean some riders wouldn't try it. But they, but more to the point is they don't put the sponges right up to the black line. You get about 10 centimeters of leeway there, which means if you're a really good bike handler, you can actually ride less than 250 meters in one lap and it's considered legal. So you could theoretically, you would get a certain distance, but you could ride less to get there, right? That's right. how it would work out in theory. And on the flip side, you could ride a hell of a, a lot, lot more, more if you were up at the top of, of If you're riding around at the red line, you're right. adding meters to every right. lap. So right. you're doing more work than you're getting credit for. Right. That's and so your line, so one thing about track is that it's hyper, hyper critical because you're turning so often that you really, really have to pay attention to your line. You can't just time trial down the road and go hard and stare your power meter and weave within the double yellow line and the side of the road. If you don't have a 12-foot right. window, you've got about a six-inch window. And I think that's one of the critical things that comes with a lot of track experience, which I had yes. virtually none of. And at the end of the race, yep. the race, the attempt, it was extremely apparent to everyone that I was not able to hold mm. a straight line and yeah. certainly wasn't even trying to get close to the black, the line, black line because it, it, that, that apron sucks you down in a sense and yep. it gets scary if you hit that. So the other aspect to track that makes it quite a bit different. Well, there, there are two other technical points that I'll mention that I think are really significant in the back to the point of, you know, why someone like Eddie Merckx would do an hour record and then say never again. One is that on a climb, when you're racing other people, in theory, when you're full pressure, your effort is relatively constant. Now, Chris, I know you mentioned that your power meter got turned off or your head unit got turned off when you did your hour temp, which is really unfortunate. It did. Um, but I'm sure you saw lots of training data and probably you noticed immediately like I did that if you go out in a 40K TT or 20K time trial or hill climb time trial, it doesn't really matter. Your power more or less stays relatively constant. It's got some natural stochastic elements yeah, and yeah. fluctuations based on the physiology of the rider, how you push. And But on the track, you get a very clear wave-like line. And that's mostly due to physics. When you go into the corner, of course, your center of gravity falls. And when, you're, when your center of gravity falls, you accelerate. And 
ideally your wheels stay attached to your center of gravity because if they didn't, <laughs> right. something bad happened. So then your then your center of gravity is actually doing a smaller, a shorter circle on the on the in the corner than your wheels are. So your wheels have to do this extra circle, which means of course they're going to accelerate. So when when you're in one gear and it's a fixed gear. Mm-hmm. Then as your center of gravity falls and you accelerate in the corner, naturally your power tends to drop unless you're intentionally doing otherwise. And then as your center of gravity comes upright in the straight right. and you become more vertical, then you're going to slow down. It's like you're feeling you're hitting a little wall. And then you sort of sense that naturally, especially if you just tell someone to go ride the track and they've never ridden it before. That's exactly what you'll see. Their power will go up as they feel their cadence dropping. They'll push against those pedals. And so you get this very wave-like function. So that means that if... Your FTP is whatever. We'll use the generic example of 300 watts. If you did an hour flat on the track, you might have very, very few one-second data points actually at 300 watts. You might be at 240 in the corners and 320 or 340 in the straights. And so what that amounts to is a giant pile of microbursts there. Mm-hmm. So that's one other factor. And then another factor on top of that is... Can I interrupt you for just please. a second? I want to say that maybe maybe Colby isn't the most experienced. He's close to one of the most experienced uh, our record attempters, if that's a word, in the world. But you can tell he's got to be the person that's thought about this the most. <laughs> <laughs> You thought about this endlessly. I've been accused of thinking too much. <laughs> it's happened. Okay. Um, back, back to what you were going to say. So the other factor is that when you're in the corners and your center of gravity falls, of course, you're experiencing increased centrifugal force. Mm-hmm. That's the Gs that you're experiencing that are smashing your head down and fatiguing your neck muscles. You can go out and ride your aero bars with your aero helmet on for two or three hours and go, yeah, my neck's a little sore. But when you're going through the banking and so if you're riding 50K an hour, that's about 200 laps on a 250 meter velodrome over the period of an hour. Right. So that's 400 corners. And the corners are about four or five seconds each, depending on what lap pace you're doing. It adds up. It adds up really quickly. The other one that people get is massive amounts of foot swelling because all the blood goes to your extremities mm. and it just gets jammed down into your feet and your feet swell. And then it's just like when you're on a really hot road ride and for those of you who have ridden in shoes that are size, half size, too small or whatever, you go out in the summer. In the winter, they're fine. And then the summer, you go up one big climb and it's really hot. And you go, I can't wear these anymore. I'm going to mm-hmm. go home and attack them with a pair of scissors because your feet swell. And then you can't push down because when you push on the pedals, of course, it makes your problem worse. So you've got all these little technical pieces between following the black line closely so you don't add distance, the increased G-forces, and then the wave-like pattern of power that really make it very, very different than just riding up a climb hard for an hour, which is quite challenging in and of itself. Yep. It also means that somebody who's a really good time trialist who's used to get on that flat course where you just put your head down and go, if they think they're going to get on the track and do this and it's the same thing, they're they're in for a shock. Uh, it, it, it brings me back to that point uh, uh, that I made at the beginning, which is the the beauty of the hour record to me is its simplicity. It's a It's a bike, it's a rider, it's a track. The complexity comes from all of these nuances that mm-hmm. you have to engage your brain to think about a lot of things when you're out there to be as successful as successful as you want to be. Yeah. So, yeah, you're at threshold. Your brain is being smushed into the track. <laughs> yet you have to think about all of these things, holding the line and 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 everything. So it it gets hard out there. It does. It just. Um, I think the word that keeps coming to mind, the adjective for me is relentless. It's just relentless pressure. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we jump into how to prepare for an hour record attempt? And we 
talked a little bit about this in the article, so I think a good place to start is with this 80-20 principle. So in cycling, generally we're going to say it's just like business. Focus on what produces 80% of the results, which is fitness, uh, having a functioning bike, those sorts of things. Don't get too caught up in the minutia because it really doesn't make that much of a difference. This is the opposite. You know, when they do studies on cycling to figure out formulas for aerodynamics or, or what sort of speed uh, a certain power translates into, they do it on the track because it's so simplified. It's so controlled. You really don't have much of a wind. You don't have road conditions, anything like that. So here you can actually do calculations to say, Reducing this amount of friction in the frame or in, in the wheels or the chain is going to produce 20 meters. Getting this little bit more aerodynamic is going to produce 40 more meters. You can actually do those calculations here. So it seems like that extra 20% is important here. Mm -hmm. But when I ask you in that preparation, can you get too caught up in that? Or do you really just need to focus equally on 100%? Yeah, of course, it's possible to get too caught up in anything, right? I think I, you need to take this one away because you've clearly like you've clearly thought about this. You've done this. You've obsessed over this, <laughs> right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. You need to. I think that's what I, my point is. Yeah. If you want to eke out every last meter, this we're talking about to the thousandth of a meter, right? Tens, hundreds, thousands. Yeah. Then, then a hundred percent. I mean, okay. You don't have to obsess over it to the point where you fatigue yourself, but right. it's worth considering all of the things because they're all going to add up to make it 20, 40, 100 mm -hmm. meters, 250 meters. Mm -hmm. You got to turn all the stones over. You look at uh, what Wiggins did to, to select his chain and mm -hmm. the company that worked with him, you know, they threw out these ridiculous numbers on how much money they spent to find the chain. And it maybe it gained him. A lap, that would be an enormous figure, an enormous figure. Yeah. But that's what they threw out there, you know, yeah. but every detail. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, yeah, you, you pick the best bearings you can, you go with the most aero frame you can, most aero, everything has got to be optimized, right? Skin suit, obviously super important. Helmet's super important. And then it's training. It's pedals, it's aerodynamics of shoes. It's everything you can get away with to the, to the limit. When I do this attempt in September, I'm going to be going for Kent Bostick's hour record. He's in the 45 to 49 category, and it's currently 49.3K. He set that in Manchester back in 99, I believe. So it's been around for a long time. And I'm going to Aguas Calientes. So I've got a big advantage on Kent right out of the blocks in that Aguas is... Yeah, I can... Let me read you something from the piece that puts this into context. So we're talking about the difference in air density between Manchester and Aguas Calientes, which is at mm -hmm. 6,200 feet, 6,200 feet, excuse yep. me. So air density determines the mass of air that you displace as you ride through it. So for example, a cubic meter of air at the velodrome in Aguas Calientes, which sits at that almost 6,200 feet mark, is about 0.96 kilograms. At sea level, it's about 1.2 kilograms. So that's the difference of a quarter of a kilogram for every cubic meter of air that you're displacing over 60 minutes. That's a big deal. Yep. So that's what you mean when you say you're at a, you have that as an, an as advantage. a big advantage yes. just going in off the top. Yes. So a good example of this is when Wiggins went for his hour record, when they got there, they measured the humidity and, and air pressure and it wasn't what they had anticipated. And unfortunately, it wasn't what they anticipated in, in, a, in the wrong direction. 
So they actually, before the race, discussed it with, with Wiggins and adjusted his target, mm-hmm. knowing that he could no longer hit what yeah. they had planned on hitting. Yeah. Yeah. Hotter air is faster and moister air is faster. When you have a controlled veldrum, to a, a controlled point. setting, yes, to a point, uh, like an indoor veldrum, so you take out wind and really then it's environmental factors, humidity, temperature, pressure. And then you could do the math. It's just, uh, they know exactly what Brad's CDA is, how many grams of drag he makes. So it's not. It's explain, explain that a little bit, the CDA for people out there that so don't. So it's just simply the amount of air that you push out of the way when you're riding your bike. The less air you push, the faster you'll go. So people look at, um, Watts per kilogram as a comparative way to measure one rider next to the other. And that's a valid model, but it's very limited in the real world because it's considering how much power you're making in a vacuum. It, it pays no attention at all to aerodynamics. And almost every bike race is impacted by aerodynamics. Even the steepest hill climbs have a tiny fraction that are impacted by aerodynamics. On the flip side, if you look at grams of drag produced by the rider versus how much wattage they're producing, then you're more in the ballpark of what someone's going to do, be able to predict how far they could go in an hour record, which is of course on a flat course or well, technically speaking, not completely flat, but yes. Right. Really the only other factors there are your coefficient of friction from your tires and your, the friction you're losing in your bearings and drivetrain. And what else am I forgetting? There's a lot of details that go into the hour. In his interview with Chris, Rohan Dennis describes just some of the preparation he did in the week leading up to his attempt including setting the temperature of the track. If you if you don't mind sharing a little bit about the week beforehand, actually. Well, I think I was in Switzerland for a week and a half before. Initially, it was trying to find out some more data of my position and my uh, my setup and everything on the on that velodrome. Because every velodrome is different. We needed to find out what pace would be ideal for me for power and everything. So uh, we're doing a lot of CDA testing, so that's a right. drag test. And then uh, we're doing 5 or 10K runs at, at race speed and just above race speed. So planning to go, obviously, faster than race speed at the, at the end of the hour. And the biggest thing I think I did was four, four days out, I did a half-an-hour test and did it as if it was race day. Everything right. was race day prep. Uh, and from there, it was just, it was pretty specific, just like, hey, we'll just keep the motor going. We don't want to let it shut down. And then we go all out and then put the tank on on race day. What about, like, did you hyperhydrate the night before or the morning of or anything like that? Yeah, so the whole time we were, we were making sure that I was getting plenty of fluid in, I had someone as as it may sound, pretty well holding a bit in next to me whenever I needed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even put a small, small amount of bicarb in before the start of race day and the trial, just to just to buffer that initial lactate a little bit on the start. Mm-hmm. The other thing we did was a little bit of cooling because it was quite hot on the track. Um, there was ice fest. Mm-hmm. The water I did have was a slushy. Mm-hmm. Before to start, so internal cooling, and we tried to keep it pretty simple. Really, we didn't want to. Well, it was scientific, but not to the gram or or the millimeter milliliter of uh, of water uh, needed to be consumed with salt and all this sort of stuff. It was. How warm did you have the velodrome? I, I assume it was controlled. Um, you could. Yeah. T- yep. 
Was it 26 degrees? Um, well, it was supposed to be at 25, I think it was. But it was it was set to 25 before anybody got in there. Right, so right. Actually bumped up to 26 before the start, which is what we were expecting at the later end of mm-hmm. the hour. So that was when I first walked in. I initially, because we hadn't been training at the heat in the velodrome, well, not that heat anyway. Initially, I was like, F- it's hot in here. I'm not sure what the ideal temperature is for an hour. I know some guys have pumped it up to 28, 29 degrees. I think it just depends on what what you can handle and, and what's comfortable for you. Right. What was your warm-up right before the, the hour? Just my, my standard TT warm-up. So I did a couple of builds up the threshold. Nothing too stupid, you could say, because obviously you don't want to empty the tank. You just want to open the open the engine up a little bit and get it warm before you actually go out there and use that energy on the track so uh, it's a fine line between overcooking it and not doing enough you want to be going well at the start as well so we did a few accelerations just short accelerations uh, just to make sure your body is ready to go six seven eight hundred watts up the start line all right let's get back to colby so it's pretty obvious that you can really get into the weeds on the details when it comes to going for an hour attempt. And in this case, you've heard me be the retro grouch and kind of hammer against it and, and just ride your, your 1994 Huffy and be happy. <laughs> this is a place where I'm going to say, yeah, you got to go into the weeds. But at the end of the day, still, the 80% is the training. And there, this is a very specialized event. So I know certainly with Chris, the, the training was quite specialized. So why don't we dig into, if you're going to go for the hour record, what's your approach to training? Well, in 95, I really focused on just timed events in general, time trials on the road. And I did a lot of, I did a lot of five minute VO2s, a lot of 20 and 25 minute low cadence. Uh, so target of around 60, 50 to 60 RPM kind of what we call today sweet spot intervals. Back then I called them sub LT. And I lifted a lot in the winter, a lot of leg press, just traditional weight, hmm. anything below below the belt, traditional leg press, single-legged leg press, hamstring curls, stuff like that. Then I would do that and I would go out and do VO2s. And then the the sweet spot interval slowly get, started getting longer, worked up to a couple 30 minutes, a couple 40 minutes, and then some 50-minute ones. I remember doing... Back in the day, I would start at the bottom of the left hand and go up Jamestown and end at the top of Super James. And that took me about 50 minutes at the time, plus or minus, to get to the mm-hmm. the crust there. Now, my programs, you know, it's really not that different fundamentally. Um, the changes are I have access to a local velodrome. I've got Boulder Valley Velodrome that's riding distance from my house. So instead of doing a 50-minute LT up Jamestown, I may go out to the track and do laps. I'll do a 10K or 20K effort out there and then go in and rehydrate and then go do it again. So I've been doing some of those. I've been focusing on VO2. You got to lift the ceiling to uh, raise the level of the whole house, right? So kind of for me, I would say VO2 is my biggest point that I need to work on at this at this juncture. It's sort of the, personally, it's the training, cross-section of training that I don't tend to do very often left to my own sort of, hey, this is fun. I'll do this type of riding. And it's one of my weaker points physiologically. So I really have to train it a lot to make it good. And so that's going to be a focus of mine for, for the next bit. And then doing laps, you got to be conditioned to handle the pressure. Just the other day I went out and did, I did 30 minutes just in the pole, but I wasn't really going for pace. 
I was just kind of riding. My legs were a bit shot from some other work, but I was like, I'm just going to do this. And even at the end of 30 minutes at around, I think I averaged 220 watts. So I ended up being close to 42, 43 K an hour. I was like, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling the pressure. I felt my feet expanding, hmm. felt my, just my arms and shoulders start to feel the load. You know, you're wrestling with that black line and, and Boulder Valley Velodrome's not insanely smooth. It's, it's a really nice track, but it's got some bumps and a few mm-hmm. challenges. And then mm-hmm. you're out there, you get the wind. It's, it's, I swear, sometimes the wind literally goes in your face on both straights <laughs> and that track. It's bizarre. Yeah. It like whips around the corner. It's pretty crazy. It's probably why nobody should actually try for an hour record <laughs> at that track. But uh, when it's very close and they yeah. are, um, extremely accommodating, then you, yeah. it's, it's awesome to have. It is. And that's yeah. one thing I'll mention about doing an hour on outdoor tracks is the weather will make you insane because mm-hmm. you start to do the math and realize that even a five mile an hour wind will absolutely annihilate your distance. And then you start obsessing over weather and then, and I did. Then you're in trouble. It's, I did. Man. I, day or night, oh, this day, that day. In 2013, you know. I went through that with the springs and it just, after a while you just go, oh, F it. I just got to go. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It is what it is. And you just do a little rain dance or weather, weather <laughs> dance. <laughs> <laughs> so we were training Chris. I mean, here we're dealing with somebody who, who five, six weeks beforehand goes to the track and goes, oh, that's what aero bars on a track bike are. <laughs> yep. So we had a couple things that we had to focus on. One was trying to get, his, obviously, his FTP power as high, as high as we could for the event. So we're not really focused on big jumps. We're not really focused on big endurance here. So it was actually low-volume training. Uh, but the other side was that sustainability, be able to sit mm-hmm. in that position on the track uh, for an hour, which is tough. So what we did, and this was actually designed by Neil Henderson, was a, a sequence of intervals. And Neil had just coached Rohan Dennis to his record, yeah, right. which doesn't stand anymore, but it was a very impressive ride in time or right. distance. Sorry. And what it was is having Chris do time. And it wasn't actually at FTP. It was 90% of, of FTP. So we measured Chris's FTP at the time at about 275. So he was doing his intervals at about 260 watts. The reason being, you're trying to hit that aerobic system. And if you try to ride right up at that threshold, there's too much of a risk of actually training more your anaerobic system, which is not going to benefit you in this event. And there's also been a lot of research showing that the you maximize lactate clearance at about 90, 95% of threshold. So that's where we wanted to train Chris. And here was kind of the sequence, which, and he ended up doing most of it on the track. It was really two workouts a week. The rest of his time the week was was pretty easy or off. I'll just kind of run through the sequence. And so if I say, for example, six by five by two, that means six four minute or sorry, six five minute intervals with a two minute recovery. So we started with short. It was six by five by two, as the example I just gave. Then he bumped up to four by eight by about four. Then four by ten by three. So you can see it's adding more and more time at that, that 90% of threshold. Then it was four by 12 by three, then three by 15 by five, two by 20 plus one more, one more 10 uh, minute interval with five minute recoveries. Then a 30 plus a 20 with a five minute recovery. So now he's getting close to actually doing an hour with very little recovery in between. And then finally, as we were getting close to the event, three by 20 by five. And two by 30 by five. So his last one, he actually did an hour. He just took a, a five-minute five rest in yeah. between. And that was the one that we were really looking at to say, mm-hmm. how close are you? What sort of power are you able to generate so we could estimate, here's what gear you need to be on the track, and, and yeah. here's what you need to be targeting. Yeah.
Here at Fast Talk, we are excited to continue working with Normatec as one of our sponsors because they have a product that we believe in. Recovery is essential. The harder you train, the more you need to focus on your recovery. Normatec's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. You've seen pros like Tom Skynch, Taylor Finney, and the BFC racing team, including Rohan Dennis, using the Normatec boots. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Check out episode 52 of Fast Talk to learn more about this compression technology. I feel like our our two preparation programs were actually relatively similar. I mean, you were as focused on VO2, you were a little more sweet spot, 90%. The thing I'll add to that is threshold. For me, you know, there's a lot of discussion in podcasts and literature about how much threshold to have in training programs. A lot of people have different opinions on this. I like to equate threshold to frosting on a cake. A little bit at the right moment brings the whole thing together. It's just perfect. Or salt in the soup. But man, ah, if, you, if you hammer that salt the soup, I remember the soup analogies from, soup analogy from last before? time. Yes, <laughs> the viewers out there probably remember okay. the soup analogies and the yeah. salt in the, salt. the soup. That, so, perfect. So for now on, anytime you're on the show, we have to have a soup and salt analogy. Okay, you have to figure out how to, how to bring it in. I think it was the same story, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so go ahead. I'm at risk, but I like it. Like I like it. Um, repeating myself. Well, so it's you're making a soup. You put your vegetables in. You put your Stock your, in your bison, yeah, your, your chicken bison. stock, whatever you're putting in there, right? If you're trying to lose weight, you're putting your celery in there, and you got to add some salt. And a little bit of salt will bring everything together, it brings all the flavor out in the soup, makes it a proper recipe. And then when you sit down to enjoy it, it's a real meal. But if you dump half a jar of salt in there, you're going to ruin the whole thing. And that's the way threshold is for me. Threshold training at the right time in a program, I can really tie things together and and stimulate the system in the right way. But if you sprinkle threshold all over the place all the time. You just end up wearing out the athlete. It comes at such high oxidative stress and borderline anaerobic stress. It requires so much recovery from the athlete off the bike to manage all that load. And it just sort of wears you down. And also there's a very, in my, from my experience, not for everyone, but for many athletes, there's a very diminishing point of return where you keep adding threshold in the recipe and they don't really get any better. They just sort of get after time, they get non-responsive. And if you keep going after that, they get really tired and trashed and flat. So it's, it's the magic kind of sprinkling of salt that you got to appear at the right time. Neil Henderson is the founder of Apex Coaching here in Colorado and one of the top coaches in the U.S. He coached Rohan Dennis for his hour attempt and his recent win at the World's Time Trial Championships. This interview is for when Henderson was helping Chris with his hour attempt. Using a lactate curve, and sorry you can't see it, Henderson gives a fantastic explanation of why you want to train a little under threshold. Just like when we talk about threshold training, which we haven't even gotten into, which this is a threshold effort. Right. Okay. We look at the physiology of, of you know, kind of what happens with progressive exercise. Threshold, whatever you want to call that, is going to be somewhere near where this really rapid rise in lactate occurs. So we would look at the associated power at this point. If we are looking to improve what I've seen, the best training is going to be just below that rise. The key thing is how you identify this rise. So if you're off by 10% on that value, 
then you're way off on those training levels because mm-hmm. this is basically within 10% right. of that break point staying under as opposed to over. Okay. When you hit this threshold, there's a lot of things that happen. One of the consequences of crossing over that threshold is you have an increase in your sympathetic nervous system activation. That increases the use of carbohydrate as a fuel. That increase all the stress hormones, catecholamines, etc. Just slightly above is much more costly than just slightly below. If we think of what causes this kind of break in terms of, you know, kind of looking at some of the physiology, there's an appearance of lactate and a clearance of lactate. As we begin exercise, we can actually see a drop in overall lactate concentrations because we actually can oxidize and use lactate as fuel. The heart actually prefers lactate as a fuel. That is its number one fuel to, mm-hmm. to use oxidatively, to use oxygen to break down lactate. Okay. There comes a point where we may be producing a little bit more lactate here, but our clearance is even greater. So it actually shows a net Mm -hmm. in the blood level drop in lactate. As we continue along, it may be stable, and then we'll start to see rises because the production now starts to go up a little bit. This break point occurs when there's an imbalance between the production and basically the clearance and reuptake of lactate. And so your production continues to go higher above it, but the clearance rate is already at basically its peak. The mm-hmm. rate of disappearance mm-hmm. is probably absolutely at a max about where that threshold is. So if we're trying to stimulate a reuptake, instead of flooding the system and going over, if we stay just under that, we're near that kind of maximum mm-hmm. clearance rate. And so doing your efforts specific to the hour right here, is going to be better than being at or even above your threshold okay. because you can recover from it more quickly and you can progressively build mm-hmm. the volume of training. There. Mm-hmm. So okay. one of the things would be, you know, just having some systematic progression of total time that you're spending near that threshold, but clearly trying to stay under. You can look at the power and I would also look at the associated heart rate. So again, heart rate has a fairly linear and you can associate the heart rate with that. Heart rate does have a day-to-day variation. Mm-hmm. Heat, hydration, caffeine, all of those things mm-hmm. having an effect on that. So a given day, you're going to have to then use one other thing, which would be your perceived effort. Mm-hmm. You know, if we do a zero to ten on a right. perceived effort, typically this is somewhere between a six and an eight on the RPD. For you, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you where that number right. is, but where that threshold is is going to be fairly consistent as a perceived effort over time. Mm-hmm. Better under than over. Mm-hmm. Very clearly. Mm-hmm. Very much better under <laughs> than over. I don't know how many times I can say that. Yep. That is the biggest mistake that I see amateur athletes make. They figure harder I go, the better I'm going to yeah. get it. Or they look at their twenty, their highest ever 20-minute power, and they're like, yeah, that's my threshold. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. 20-minute power was never threshold for anyone ever. 20-minute mm-hmm is close to threshold, but it's in excess of threshold. Mm -hmm. It is depending on the person anywhere from five to 15% over threshold, especially a one-off 20 minute effort. All right, let's get back to the show. One thing I'll say too about the numbers we were working with is that on a climb or something, my FTP or my my numbers are completely different. I, with so little experience in an aero position, and I'm not saying this to make excuses for a low number or anything. It was just significantly lower than what it, you would see on my road bike. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you, what, what are your numbers look like? Do yeah. they, I know someone like Rohan, I, I happen to actually ride 
go for a road ride not long after he had, uh, maybe a couple months after he had done the record, he was in Boulder and I was asking him about how the attempt went. And in the conversation, he actually revealed to me that his numbers are better, better. Yeah, on a track bike than they are on the road, which to me is, is, is yeah. you know, abnormal. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's pretty common for people to lose some FTP power when they go from road to aerobike. Yeah. For sure. And if you think about the reasons for that, um, I mean, the biggest single one is when you're riding on the road bike, most of the time we ride on the hoods and you've got that point to stabilize. So you're making power with your, your distal segments, your feet, and all that power has got to be stabilized by your hips and torso. And part of that stabilization happens by your hands grabbing the hoods. So when you grab the hoods, that gives you that long lever, your forearm plus your upper arm to help stabilize the torso from moving around too much. Or if you want to have a rhythmic movement, for example, up a steep part of a climb, you can do that and your arms kind of counterpose that force and it all sort of flows. When you're in aero bars, you're of course pinned at the elbows. So it's like, effectively, it's like narrowing your stance a lot. So you've increased your balance challenge. You've increased the challenge of stabilizing the torso. And a lot of riders really struggle with that. Less then, leverage. Generally. Less leverage. Yeah, yeah. yeah less yeah. leverage and less muscles to actually stabilize everything, all that motion. And then you add all the G's again from the corners. So it all kinds of adds up on the track. For me, I found that my my power numbers are pretty close to road and track once I'm fully adapted to track aero bars and I've been riding them for a while. I would say I'm not quite there right now, but... You are extremely flexible too. And when you ride a road bike, you're so bent over that your feet shorter than people you ride next to, even though when you were, you know, you're not any shorter than them. Right. Which most people don't have that luxury, I don't think. Yeah, and I get comments about it all the time on group rides and people complain about being behind me in, in pursuits and points races and stuff. <laughs> no draft. Oh, man, no draft. Pretty old joke. But some people are born with actual big VO2. Some people are born with <laughs> shaped butts. So you, you take true. it where you can get it, this right? This is true. Um, but I will say the flexibility, it, you know, it comes at a cost. I mean, not that long ago, I listened to a lecture from the famous triathlon coach, Bobby McGee. And he said, show me a really flexible athlete and I'll show you a terrible runner. So when you're generating force the elastic component of your soft tissue, your fascia is what contains or directs that force. So people who are really highly mobile have trouble generating high amounts of force because you don't have this, the, the fascial system to kind of contain or direct that motion to organize that motion as much. It's easier for your motion to go all over the place. Is it like the difference between a hard tail and a full suspension mountain bike? Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, you so can use, you can use that for your next lecture. Thanks. I might, I might borrow that. <laughs> so, um, Another thing that's important here with this is, so all muscles ha- have an optimal length. So if you think about your bicep, you know, right at that, when your, your elbow's at that 90 degree angle, uh, the weight that you can lift um, in that position is much higher than what you can lift when you are starting out, which is why you see a lot of people in the weight room sit there and, and only go through like two <laughs> inches of movement yeah, because yeah. they want to show how much they can lift. So we have the same thing with our legs. And on an aero bike, uh, to get in a, the most aero position, it's actually for most people taking a lot of their muscles, particularly your hamstrings and your calves, out of their optimal length. So they can't actually produce yep. as much strength. Yep. If you're highly flexible, that's actually not the case. Right. You get in that more aero position and, and you're actually putting those muscles into their optimal length position. Right. Right. Yep. And I would say I've noticed that in some general kind of phenotyping observations I've done with athletes in the when I do bike fits is that there's some athletes who under pressure, how I term it is they tend to prefer a more extended position, a longer spine, maybe a little bit longer reach. 
And there are other athletes who, as they go harder, they kind of ball up. Yeah. Right. And curl up into a yeah. little roly poly. And so I sort of try to suss that out when I'm fitting and look at it. Cause you got to understand if you, if you make someone's reach a little bit optimistic in an aero bike and they're, and then you don't see that when they go hard, they're going to turn into a ball, a meatball, then they're going to have this wrestling match where they're going to come forward on the saddle and then they're not going to be making enough power. So then they're going to have that type, this is what I call typewriter ring. They dick, 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 out to the end of the saddle and then tunk, back into the saddle. I'm just dating <laughs> yeah, myself I like there. That. No, I like that. 19, they won't know what's going on. But <laughs> so, uh, and so you do this correction where you scoot your butt back, right? And then you this dick, is dick, me. Dick, dick, work your this way out me. to the end of the saddle. Yeah. 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 Um, I really, when I go hard, I'm on the rivet. That's where that, yep. you know, you go to the front of your, your, your butt is just on the tip of your saddle and I'm just like flexing yep. and yeah. clenched. And that's, like, that's me in my power yeah. position. Like Durant this year at the tour. Yeah. yeah. Although he's changed. He didn't used to look like that, but anyway. But that is still one of the biggest challenges on a TT bike. When I'm going hard, mm-hmm. you just slide to the front of the saddle. Right. I'm trying to remember who it was, but, but one of the top time trialists in the world apparently actually tried putting Velcro. I think it was Tony Martin. Tony was Martin, Tony Martin? Yeah. Grip, grip, tape, grip tape and he ripped through his shorts by the end of the <laughs> attempt. My take on that for the record is that that's the wrong wrong solution. You need a different saddle. You need Yeah, there's something right. else going on. There are other they make going on there. they also make those those saddles with a little suction with Prologo makes them with the like tiny little micro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'd be a better idea than grip tape from your son's yeah. skateboard. <laughs> so one last thing in terms of the the execution. You know, we've talked about there's a lot of minutiae, a lot of little details, but on the flip side, it's quite a simple bike. You have one gear and it seems like the gear you select and the cadence is critical. So can you yep. two talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the math is critical. You have to know, you have to be realistic about your pace. And then you have to know as a rider, what is your optimal cadence? And you can look at some data on that. Most most of the time, we've got good data to support that. But you also just kind of know it. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you go out and do intervals on the road all the time on a flat road, what is your preferred cadence? You're going to start to figure that out. For me, it was really close to 100 RPM. I'm a, I'm a little gear guy. So I, I worked towards that. When I did the 95-hour record, I rode a 55.14. And I believe I was like 100.2 RPM average or something like that. If I remember correctly, it was pretty darn close. And I shoot for near that that cadence for my records, uh, and I'll do that again whenever yeah. I was for sure. Yeah, when I was was uh, preparing, I spoke with Neil Henderson, Rohan's coach, Rowan, Rohan, 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 Rowan, Rowan Dennis, Rowan. Um, and yeah, he, our, our he t- mission with this podcast is to mispronounce every single pro's name. <laughs> we have been spot on <laughs> so far. <Nailed> it. <laughs> Yeah, but mo- I think the the data that he had was that uh, that hundred RPM is is a good target. Even one hundred and five, some people shoot for, mm-hmm. but you really don't want to go lower than that too much. And there's a physiological reason for that. Yes, although one of my athletes that I've been working with for a few years, Molly Van Helling, is she's a gear monster. She's a mutant. It seemingly has no bottom to her cadence. So we're literally the limiting factor for her is finding big enough chain rings. Wow. She She's does. going for an attempt as well in September. Is that correct? Yep. yep. And she was there last year in August and rode over 47. And I have to look at the data to be sure, but she was in the low 80s for cadence average, which is like Oof. way off the chart. But she's Molly. She's amazing athlete, has some sort of crazy capacity to generate high torque for a long period of time. Interesting. Yeah. But it was interesting. You pointed out in there that was it three, only three times has the hour record ever been set at under 100 RPM? Hmm. And one of them was like 98. Yeah. In terms of finding the right gear that you should run on race day, it's just a math formula. It's just a yeah, math Pretty much, problem. yeah. Because, you know, I mean, well, okay, the limiting factor there is 
I have spoken to some athletes who don't have access to a track, but they want to go do an hour record, or even they want to go to Masters Worlds in Los Angeles and do, you know, 2K or 3K. And if they live in, I have one guy who lives in central California and he's, he's five, six hours from LA. So we don't have a lot of data. So then it gets a little trickier because it's like, well, what cadence is actually going to be optimal for this guy when he goes to the track? And the best case scenario is for you to go to the velodrome and do a bunch of testing, mm-hmm. try different gears, different efforts, try and reverse order one day, you know, bigger to smaller, smaller, bigger, put all the data in a pile. You get enough data and you'll, you'll be able to figure it out. And then you coordinate that with your notes, careful note taking and your own perception. And you might be surprised at what you find, but most of the time there's a correlation. You go, okay, this gear feels about right. And then you look at the times and you go, yep, sure enough, I was getting my most consistent times at this RPM. And for pursuit, those RPMs would normally be quite a bit higher because you're making higher power. But that's, if you've got access to your track, you just go out there and you're doing 10, 20 minute efforts. If it's an outdoor track, you have to factor in wind. And of course you have to factor in the weather, right? Yep. Yep. Temperature, pressure, humidity. Uh, yeah. And then you can just find an online gear cadence calculator. There's a bunch of them out there. There are a lot of apps that'll calculate your cadence from your gearing and your speed and your tire size. So that's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. An important thing to think about here is you, you, you know, some of you might read an article somewhere saying that well, 105 RPM is optimal. But Colby, it was great that you said you really need to understand what's, what's right for you because when you hit that 30 minute mark and you're really starting to hurt mm-hmm. uh, and your natural cadence is 95. Yep. You're going to start Gravity. going to your natural natural cadence, yep. whether 105 is, is yep. proven to be the best or not. And you're not going to realize it because you don't have a, a computer on your handlebars telling you your cadence just dropped 10 just RPM. Dropped, yep. And when you're tired, it's hard to feel that. So yep. that's going to be an, an added challenge. I mean, you'd see it in lap splits and then you'd, you'd figure it out. But That's when you start surging, though, too, if you drop and then pick it up and then yeah. you go over and then you go under. And that, that's when things go haywire. It's just the constant pressure yeah. that you've got to maintain. That's sustainable, constant pressure. Okay, so we've done all our preparation. And you are now on the start line of the track getting ready for your hour record. And I should point out for anybody who hasn't done this before – you're not going to have a big Garmin 1000 with all the data. Some of the purity here is I believe you can't have any data, correct? Well, you can get data from an outside source, a coach or lap splits, et cetera. But yes, that's correct. You can't have, you can't have a radio and you can't have anything on your handlebars. Right. So there's no display allowed. You can record data, but it's got to be somewhere where you can't see it. Usually people, riders put the head unit under their seat. Okay. So this is riding truly you against blind. the clock. Yep. Mm-hmm. What do you do? How do you pace yourself? What's the strategy here? Well, someone once asked me, like, that's incredible. You set the US hour record. Thanks, man. What at what point did you just just stand up and go as hard as you could <laughs> all the way from the from there to the finish? And I said, at the start. <laughs> Which was pretty much true. But I mean, when I did it in ninety five, again I had an exact schedule, so I knew how many seconds I was up on Fry's mathematical pace. Explain the scheduling to pe- for people out there that aren't familiar with the, yeah. the track experience. Well, you know, so it's pretty simple on the track. You just take lap times to the tenth of a second, and then you have a cumulative time, and you have in an hour record you have markers. So I knew that example at five k, Fry's time was X. So it's pretty simple. If I had crossed five k three seconds before Fry, then I knew I was up three seconds. And that's right. about how it went. I was up three, four, five, 10, 12, et cetera. And again, when you're in the deep in the pain cave, those seconds can make all the yeah, difference. Those little cues, those little cues are, it's are just such yeah, a powerful magical. Carrot. And your coach will sometimes, they'll either give you a, a up or a down or they'll stand relative to a line to to indicate whether you're up up on somebody or, or behind yeah stuff so, like that well the british team i believe innovated that particular method of communication because in training it's common for 
coaches to yell splits at an athlete, whether you're doing an individual pursuit or you're doing training for an hour record or a 4K team pursuit, for example, or a 3K team pursuit, depending on gender and distance and age, you would get splits. And so the rider, the coach would simply say the last two significant digits, which right. if you're doing a 16.0 second lap, tents are very important in a team pursuit. It's won and lost by thousands. So he would say uh, six zero, which means 16.0 seconds. And with that update, you know the exact schedule as a rider. You know exactly, you've talked about it with your coach in advance, where you should be. And so you have an idea. Oh, I'm supposed to be riding five nines. I'm a tenth down. Or, oh, I'm on six twos. I'm a little bit hot. So you course correct based on the, that information. And you get that information every lap normally in a timed event on the track. So you have very up-to-date information. In an hour record, it would be a bit laborious for a, a coach to shout every single split for every single lap because you're doing around about 200 laps on a 250, depending on your distance. So there are other ways to do it. How we did it with um, in 95 is they simply gave me, they had a chalkboard and time and they wrote on their, I think it was a big whiteboard and they wrote plus five, plus six, which meant I was six seconds ahead of John Fry. The walking example you referred to, Chris, it was derived when people realized that, for example, in Manchester Stadium, which is sold out, I think it's about 6,000 seats, the British are in the team pursuit final. No rider is going to hear anything a coach says. Right. The crowd is going insane. So they had to do come up with a visual system of telling the team what pace they were on. And so the system they developed was when they were on schedule, the coach stood exactly on the start finish line of the event of the, where they started Yep. for every step forward. He took into the first turn. They were a second ahead for every step backward. He took towards turn four. So every step was a 10th of a second. Sure, so you'd sure. be 10 steps away if they were a second up or down. And then the riders knew exactly where they were. So, Chris, since you didn't have a target, there wasn't somebody's time that you were trying to beat. How were you pacing Well, yourself? I had a target in that based on calculations. I knew how far I thought I could go given, you know, not perfect conditions, but great conditions. Um, so, based on that and based – I knew what lap times I was supposed to hit. And I actually had my friend and mechanic – uh, Nick Legan at trackside the whole time, and he was yelling out track t- uh, lap times uh, on every lap. I think what's interesting to note for for my attempt is that, given my lack of experience on the track and on a on a fixed gear bike, he ended up cheating a little bit so that I wouldn't surge so much. If I was down on time on a lap time, he might tell me that I was only down a little bit, so I wouldn't try like pick it up too much because you on a, that fixed gear bike it just the momentum of it, it just acts differently from what you're used to. If you're come from a road bike, he was, um, he was smoothing the data. He was smoothing the data, so to speak. And, you know, trying to psychologically influence me a little bit as well so that I didn't overdo it or underdo it. Well, in the first 20, 30 minutes of an hour, you don't want big accelerations or changes of pace because that's going to come at a high metabolic cost. It's going to come at a price and you're going to have to carry the load of that effort the rest of the hour. So it's, you really want, I mean, Rowan Dennis is one of the world's best at metering his effort during a time trial. He rides in a very, very narrow power range. And he does that specifically because he doesn't want to tap into the the anaerobic system or the glycolytic system at all and cause some damage that he's going to have to carry around for the rest of a TT. You've got a few bullets to use. And if you sprinkle them on the wrong part, part it's like putting too much soup in the... It's the Merck's method. Too much soup in the salt. Yeah. Uh, this, the, is a, this is a really important point because since you are on a fixed gear bike... This isn't like doing a hill climb time trial where you might push a little bit to get over that 12% grade, but then you can ease up and recover. There's zero recovery here, right? Yes. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. You're dead in the wind. You're just, <laughs> you're so exposed <laughs> so out there. Exposed. That's why yeah. in that, when I read that opening paragraph, like I've really felt all alone out there. You are so alone, so exposed, and there's nothing you can do about it. When you start feeling that pain creep in, you can't stop it. I really think you gave yourself a bit of an, uh, ice getting uphill challenge in the sense that you set on this quest to do this hour record and you had a projected pace, but there was no stake. There was really, well, yeah. And so the last 20 minutes of that record, when it really, really started to hurt, I mean, what gets you through those moments is the carrot. And for me, when I did the 95 record, I had that carrot. A record. Exactly. And that, man, like I was saying before, that light at the end of the tunnel is so powerful. You didn't have that. And so it's so... It's it's probably a bit of a negative carrot, but you did have the carrot of... This is an article in Vellum. There's a whole <laughs> lot of people that are going to read, read this. It. So you knew you had to finish it, but you also to finish didn't well. have that. Yeah, but, yeah. but right. So you probably felt some public pressure as we all do when we race our bikes and pin on a number or yeah. do whatever we're doing. It's, do a very good, it's a very good point. I did. Right. There was no uh, legitimate official, official yeah. is a better word, record out there for me to be striving for. It right. was It right. was just... You had no well, this for fun, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. But this is also a big one for me because it's the positive versus the negative goal. You were going for a record. Mm -hmm. That's a real positive goal. Mm -hmm. Chris was going for, I don't want to embarrass myself when we publish this, which is a bit of a negative goal. And I'm, I'm a big believer in yep. positive goals are, are, yep. are far more effective. And that's that's to my point. You, yeah. you had some external factors maybe potentially working against you and it just was what it was. To beat the dead horse, it's like you didn't have a bar to jump over. You had your projected... Pace, which was what, by the way? What was your your projected I distance? I think it was right around 40. I mean, I basically hit it right around 46. It was 46? Yeah. And you went 45.9 or 45.8? Yeah. Nine. Yeah, nine. So, yeah, you were you were really close to that pace. So, the math ended up being about right for based on the numbers you had in the training and stuff. But if you knew that you were going to get a national record that was previously, you know, 44.8 or whatever, then that's a bigger fire. Or if it was even more significantly, if it was 46.2 or 46.4, right. you probably could have, it would have been a very different perspective on your ride is my point, mm -hmm. most likely. In, in, in fairness, I did have, there is a record out there, but I knew that no matter what, if I rode 49, it wasn't going to be an official record right? because I didn't, you know, pay the, the exorbitant the fees yeah. <laughs> to get the official. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an important thing. If you're going for this and you want it to be official, you have to pay for the UCI officials to come and certify it. And then if you get a world record, you have to pay for anti-doping. Yep. Yeah. yeah, there's there's bucks. there's some some things uh, mm -hmm. you have to do be, before you can get your, your name officially in the record books. I got mine in a magazine called Vela News. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's as official as it gets. <laughs> I feel like... I remember you telling me a story once about how one of your attempts went so well that you were seeing colors or you were, music was, I don't know, it was just yep. like a magical experience for you. That's on the flip side. Yes. Could you maybe just give yep. us a the yep. taste of that experience, that surreal experience? Yeah, that was, that was 95. Probably what I was talking about was like, I'm a very musical person and I pretty much always have music playing in my head. There's a constant soundtrack and what's playing right now? Royce. <laughs> okay. Wow. Good answer. Yeah. It's kind of um, hoping for Ber Berlin. You take my breath away. <laughs> it's fine. We'll go with it. No. Uh, some Royce and some Dizzy Rascal, actually. Okay. Got a combination of those two going on. But so, uh, yeah, I'm a white guy. Um, <laughs> but as I've gotten older, I've learned to sort of associate 
the music that's playing in my head, the tune that I have, which with my state of focus, my state of being, my state of happiness to get a little out there. People always talk colloquially, colloquially about how you get a bad soundtrack stuck in your head and it ruins your day, right? For me, that's a really intensely personal experience. I've had that many times when I was younger. And so I think some of it's about mindfulness and letting go. And in the last about 25 minutes of the 95 hour record, I was able to select tracks at will, but almost <laughs> in a playful way. Wow. And it's not only about selecting the tracks, it's about, it's about having access to the library in the sense that, um, like I'm, I'm just such that person that in my head I can play like the other day, a U2 song came on and it was the first like two chords of this, barely this guitar. And I asked everyone around me to name it and no one could. And I knew it immediately. And it's because I'd listened to it like 15 million times in high school. And it just brought me right back to high school. But it, I hadn't heard the song in 10 years, but of course I could play the whole thing. So sure. I have that autoplay button that happens. And, and that uh, library was accessible to me in that moment of that hour. It's like I hit some, to me, it was a clear indication that I hit a flow state, you know, a very rhythmic state where I was just performing at a very high level, both physically and mentally, I guess. If Colby and Chris haven't made it clear yet, an hour attempt is as grueling mentally as it is physically. Neil Hederson talked with Chris about the importance of training the mental side. No matter what, if you got extraordinarily fit and we got you to a certain sustainable power, but your head, head is not ready for it, then you would not access that capacity. So keep in mind what you're doing in some cases is going to be giving you the confidence that you can do this and sustain this effort. Mm -hmm. Again, aside from the physiology, but you cannot separate those two in an hour. Mm -hmm. It is a psychologically challenging effort that you're right. going into. So, yeah. so make sure that that aspect is addressed as well. One point on that. Well, in Rohan's case, I know you mm -hmm. worked with him. Yep. Does he see us, does BMC have a sports psychologist that worked with him kind of on the psychological element or he's a pro kind of assume he's used to yeah well, that was something that I was work. actually putting into his schedule actually doing periods of actually visualization mm -hmm. um, and I actually put together a video of point of view riding the track at that speed mm -hmm. that he could just play on loop sit there <laughs> watching it with nothing else no anything else mm -hmm. and just kind of get into a whatever you wanted to call mindset, it, meditation, a mindset, right. a, a focus, a concentration. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we did with increasing frequency mm -hmm. in a couple weeks leading into it, having that at a plate and, and setting aside time mm -hmm. several days a week mm -hmm. to do some mental training mm -hmm. was part of it, just like physical, right. physiological training. It doesn't just happen. A lot of people out there, a lot of athletes believe you're either strong or you're weak and you know it's just it's there because you want it to be there not really you got to train it again people who have those skills have developed those skills over time by paying attention and doing things depending what that is everyone's a little bit different when we did our research for that that episode on the mindset of cycling they actually had a there was a whole study talking about Pacing strategy is about mindset for, for performance. And they used Bradley Wiggins' hour attempt. They, they actually worked with him while he was doing that to see what his mindset was, how he was, what sort of mental games he was playing with himself to get through it. There were a couple things he did. One, which I'm a big believer in, is what they call chunking, mm -hmm. which is break it into segments. Yep. And that's I, anybody who does a time trial, when you're going to start hurting five minutes off the blocks. If at any moment you think to yourself, I'm hurting, there's 55 minutes to go, 
you're yeah. going to quit. Yeah. yeah, you're screwed. Yep. So think about what do I need to be doing for the next five, 10 minutes? If you think of it in terms of he used 12 minute segments mm -hmm. and all he did was focus on finish that 12 minute segment. Then he worried about the next 12 minute segment. And you can always sit there and go, I can suffer through 12 minutes, right. no matter how much it hurts. But if you're thinking I have to suffer through another 55 minutes, much, much harder. And for each of those different segments, he did, he focused on different aspects, correct? Right. So this was the, the really interesting part of the study was they, they talked about, you, you hear a lot of sports psychologists talk about ego versus task-oriented thinking. So ego is focusing on your performance, focusing on what's going on inside your body, focusing on, on how you're feeling. But it's, it's a very internal focus on you. Uh, task-oriented is much more focusing on what do you need to do. So it's what gear should I be in? Is my cadence dropping? That sort of thing. So, you know, somebody who's very, very ego motivated and they're going up a climb and they're hurting, what's motivating for them is to look and go, oh, I'm kicking this guy's butt. He's dropping. He's hurting more than me. Right. Yeah. I feel good. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's very ego driven. Mm -hmm. The task oriented person is just thinking, okay, my cadence starting to drop. I need to get a, a gear lower. Okay. Let's look at my, my heart rate. I need to keep my heart rate right about here. I need to keep my power right about here. But they're just focusing on accomplishing the task. Mm -hmm. So Wigan's strategy was to start by being much more ego-driven. So they were actually in the, the study calling it being reactive. Yep. So when it wasn't hurting that bad, he was focusing on where's my pain level? How does this feel? You know, what's how's my breathing? That sort of thing. It was all very internally focused. Sensation oriented. Yeah. Right. Where it wasn't he wasn't hurting so much that that his answer would just be, oh, my God, this hurts. <laughs> right. As he got later into the hour record where it really started to hurt. He did much more task oriented things to actually distract himself from the pain. Mm -hmm. So it's things like sequencing his his cadence with the banks, because you were talking yep. about that whole effect of increasing and decreasing power. So that because you're in a fixed gear, it also means your cadence is going to be affected. Mm -hmm. But it was very much focused on here's the kind of task oriented things I need to do. And that's what I'm going to focus on. And it, it was, like I said, almost a distraction from the pain. Yeah, no, that's the type of thing that, at least for me, you do those things and at a point, I don't think you can, you just, it just hurts, you know, but uh, breaking it down is something I did as well. I forget what amount of time, but it was probably just 10 minute segments. Um, and I had sort of a list of things I focused on for those six different 10 minute segments things I, I focused on in terms of cadence and rhythm and that absolutely helps. And then I got to a point and nothing would help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I read uh, Wigan's book about the hour and I don't think he quite broke it down as much as that. I think he talked a little bit about that if I remember correctly, but he definitely spoke about focusing on driving out of the corners and cadence and things like that. That's, I mean, that's pretty interesting. And that, that brings me back to my 95 record where I was ahead of Fry the whole time. And on the one hand, you might say, oh, that was ego driven, but really I was seeing it more as a task. It was pretty simple. It was just math. It's like, I'm three seconds ahead. Now I'm four right. seconds ahead. This is trending well. I'm going to keep adding seconds to that list. And then I know I could succeed. So for me, that's why that 95 hour was a much, um, I won't say easier ride because it wasn't easy, but it was, it was just a different ride. When I did it in 2013, I trained all season and then finally started to feel the form come about September. And then we had the 2013 floods, of course. And then things got really complicated because I didn't ride my bike for about eight days because it was still flooding. 
And then when I finally got my head wrapped around it and decided I was going to do that record at the end of the month anyway, because I'd had these sponsors involved and I trained all year and whatever it was going to be what it was, there was nowhere to train. All the roads were closed. <laughs> I had to drive to Deer Creek and do intervals up there. And that was really challenging. So anyway, sometimes life gives you, gives you some battles. Yes, but definitely. You just have to persevere and keep going. So, but I, I like that discussion about ego driven versus, and that kind of goes back to, I guess, what I was saying earlier about when I was a young rider, I think I was definitely more task oriented. For me, time trials were the most interesting events because back then, this is when I was really young, where no power meters, this is 89, 90, 91. I would just focus exclusively on going as fast as I could. That's all it was. I would, in my mind, I was like opening up the throttle all the way and just holding it there as long as I possibly could. That was the beauty of it being a young rider. That was very task oriented. It took me a long time to figure out how to do that at the right moment in a mass start bike race. A long time. But the blocking yes. things is definitely, that's crucial. Yeah, it's crucial. It really is. Because if you get going the first two laps into an hour record and go, I've got 198 laps left. Oh yeah. It's too big a it's, number. It's too, it is. It's a big number and it's a big task. You have to break it down into chunks. For me, I, I tend to think in 15 or 20 minute chunks during an hour. 20 minute chunks, I think is three by 20 is pretty manageable. I want to know, is it solely about the record for you to do another attempt or is there something you haven't proven to yourself? Why are you doing this again? Um, for me, it's tying some things together. In 2013, I rode, I actually rode further than Kent's record. I rode 49.8 uh, in the Springs. But uh, Different age group. Uh, no, uh, yes, that's correct. I, yeah, you're right. So I would have been too young to set that record. But also that one didn't get recorded in the UCI book, got recorded. It's the U.S. record for 40 to 44 right now because the event promoter failed to secure drug testing. So there were UCI officials there, but I didn't get tested, which meant it was a U.S. record, but not a UCI record. You can't, if you, you can submit it, but they won't approve it. So I was like, well, okay, whatever. I was going for the U.S. elite record at that time, which was Norm's record. And I was not really that close. Norm to Alvis. Correct. Norm Alvis. So when I said it in 95, he said it in 97. And he wrote a 51.505, which at the time was smoking far. It's still yeah. pretty darn yeah. fast <laughs> for an hour. So for me, yeah, it's about tying things together. I mean, I also I have Molly and Rob have great relationships with the people in Mexico. And there's a lot of pathways and networks that are in place to make that happen, thanks to, to Rob. So that admittedly makes things a lot easier. I get to go and be there with Molly while she does her record attempts. I work with some of the other athletes there too. So it's practical in that sense. But then it's like, well, this makes sense. I should do this. Um, they I, just resurfaced that track? They did. They just resanded it. And then a Danish guy actually tried the elite hour there. Oh, did he? Yeah. And he rode yeah. a high 53. He went really fast. He didn't break record, obviously, but he did really well. So for me, it's it's kind of ticking a box in that sense. If I can get a world record, it helps out some of my helper supporters and sponsors that work with me over the last few years. <laughs> it's something I feel I can do and want to do. And Kent's record's been there for a while, so I try to <laughs> kick that guy off the page a little bit. Um, that sounds goal oriented. I'll do respect to Kent. Yeah, um, it's some of both. Yeah, it's, there's some tasks and some ego in there. <laughs> yeah, but it would it would be cool. I'd really like to go over fifty. And just a pinch um, of salt. Yeah, just a pinch of salt. Just a little bit of threshold at the right moment. Yeah, hopefully I'll actually get data for this one because of the three records I've done 
uh, I have data from none. Really? I did actually capture data from 95, oh. but that was like the first year the SRM was commercially available and it just got eaten in like software updates and upgrades over the years and went to open the file one day and it was gone. But So this is really why you're doing the hour record just again, data, to get, to get data, data, to make sure yeah. that people realize you've actually done one. Seriously. Did it happen? <laughs> Where's your file? Yes. <laughs> He's going to finish the race. Like, do you want to know if you won? He's like, no, I got to get this up on Strava. What was my average power? <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Uh. All right, we're taking 60 minutes. We're going to condense it into one minute, Colby Pierce. You're on the clock. Give us 60 seconds on what it means to ride the hour, to hold records, the pain, the suffering, the elation. What's it all about? Relentless pace and attention to detail. All the details in preparation, all the details in equipment really add up in an hour record. Attention to detail during the ride is critical. Your line, your pacing, your own internal measurement, your attention to the environment of what's happening. Don't get lost out there. All those things add up to a successful attempt against the clock for an hour on the track. All right, Trevor. 60 minutes into 60 seconds. Go for it. Okay. I think my main take home from this is you two are insane. <laughs> Thank you. Particularly you, Colby, because you actually know how much it hurts. And you're still going to do it. Uh, which May I, I have seconds, please? <laughs> and thirds and fourths. <laughs> which I actually kind of uh, admire. But I think the, the only take home I have to add to this, and I don't have too much to add because I haven't gone through the pain myself. But even though we've talked about how, my, how all the details that are involved in this, what I think is really neat is once you are on the line, it's actually a very simple thing. It's really just you and how much you can tolerate the pain, how much you can talk yourself into going through this and, and riding, riding right at your limit, which is, is, gives it a certain purity in my books. I think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and this is going to sound odd probably coming from me, a guy who's expressed a lot of dark emotions during this episode, but um, I think you need to have fun with this. This is a really cool experiment to geek out on equipment, your physiology, every little piece you get to play with and experiment on and tweak and fine tune and reliving of this, it hurt a lot and all that stuff, but it's really amazing to play with all of this stuff and try to eke out the little last little bits of yourself on a track and, and express it in that way. I think it's fun can be lost when you talk about this stuff because you, we always hear the tales of that was the hardest thing I've ever done and I never want to do that again and it was awful, but there can be some fun had in this and I think it you learn a lot. You learn a lot, not just about yourself, which is amazing, but aerodynamics and equipment and, and all of those things. So that's what I would hope people could also get from this is it's really fun. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between Velo News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, Colby Pierce, Rowan Dennis, 
and Neil Henderson. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.